Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is mixer Billy Decker. But first of all, let's talk about some news here. One of the bigger things in the last week was the RIAA, that's the Association for the Recording Industry, basically the Record Label Association, is clamping down on ripper sites, especially those that rip off music videos from YouTube. There are 41 YouTube ripper sites that the RIAA wants to get rid of. The biggest one is called YouTube-DL, and that's on GitHub. And one of the problems is there's a lot of creators that actually use it as a backup for their videos. So they're naturally not too happy about this. On the other hand, it also seems to have come back up real fast. So they really didn't get rid of it. Another one is called Y2Mate, and it has 113 million views per month. Its traffic basically doubled since the RIA has gone after it, which kind of tells you something. Sometimes it's actually not really helping. Another one that I think is probably the worst of all is called 1337X, and that hosts full albums along with music videos and movies. The bad part is most of it is stolen pre-releases. So what they do is they basically hold the music for hostage in exchange for a cryptocurrency fee. Now, the way I look at it is someone who's willing to rip off a video or basically a streaming service isn't going to pay for it anyway. They can get all this stuff for free, even without ripping it. So it makes you wonder what the logic is behind all this. That being said, the RIAA is actually doing its job. This is exactly what it's supposed to do. Among other things, it's supposed to find music pirates and take them down. And that's what it's been doing, and it's been really active lately. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, here's something that has potential dire consequences for musical instrument manufacturers. There was a company that had a big fire, AKM Semiconductors. They're in Nobioka, Japan. Even though the company is headquartered here in San Jose, the actual manufacturing plant is in Japan. And the problem is, this is where many of the semiconductors Many of the integrated circuits, the chips that are used in audio gear, this is where it's all made. They had an 82-hour blaze that pretty much took the whole building out. Actually, there are two fires over two days, which later took down the walls and the roof. So it looks like this factory is going to be offline for 12 months or more. Now, like I said, they make DAC chips and analog-to-digital converter chips and Bluetooth receivers and wireless mic ICs, and sample rate converters, and analog and digital voice processors for companies like Millennium Media, SSL, Tascam, SPL, RME, and many more. Already, the chips that 
the electronics parts distributors had on hand have disappeared, and the price is now $5 semiconductor is going for more than $100. So there's a big panic in the industry. AKM said they're going to outsource all their dyes, which apparently they have, and that means that at least there'll be some in the pipeline, but no one knows how long that will take. So I would expect that will affect both the price and availability of audio hardware in the coming year or so. So don't be surprised if that purchase that you want to make is a lot more expensive down the line. My guest this week is mixing engineer Billy Decker, who's mixed hits for Kenny Chesney, Darius Rucker, Jason Aldean, Jamie Lynn Spears, George Jones, and Sam Hunt, among others, and they have sold more than 25 million albums. Billy is different from most other mixers in that he's able to mix extremely fast thanks to his templates that outline all the basic parameters of each instrument. To that end, Billy isn't shy about how he does it and has recently released a book called Template Mixing and Mastering that explains his method. He's also helped develop the Bus Glue series with Joey Sturgis Tones as well as his Drum Shots library with Drumforge. During the interview, we talked about why he started using templates, the thinking behind processing different mix elements, his plugins and drum samples, and much more. I spoke with Billy via Zoom from his home near Nashville. Let's talk about template mixing. That's something that you do, and you're obviously great at it. And some may say that you invented it, but not really. I think Chris Lordology really was the first guy that kind of did that, right? I'm sure he probably did on a large format console, to be honest with you. So, okay. How did you get started doing this? Uh, I actually, he's, a, uh, I don't want to say a mentor, but I have met him a time or two. And he gave me a lot of really good pertinent advice. And I really just wanted to mix. And I wanted to not spend 12 hours a day in the studio. So I kind of started doing this template thing. And it allowed me to almost have like a virtual assistant. I've never had an assistant. I prep all my own sessions. I've always just been kind of a one-man show. And by me doing that, it allowed me to just create a skin per se and import the audio in. And then I'm off and running. The song is almost 90%, 95% of the way there, to be honest with you. Uh, and I've realized that if I gained, used uh, gain structure and made waveforms a certain height or whatnot, they would fit in the template. So to be perfectly honest with you, I mix almost as much with my eyes setting up my template as I do with my ears. You know, I've heard the story about Tom Dowd doing a mix very much like that, where just using the VU meters, which, you know, is the equivalent, actually, and he knew exactly where to put everything. And I think the whole thing was, okay, kick and snare is between minus seven and minus five, and the vocal and the bass are there too, and then there's certain things that are at minus 10. And I heard the story about him putting up a whole mix just like that, without listening to it. And when he finally opened it up, it was like, wow, this is almost finished. So way back when it was happening. Well, the fun thing about it was before I started deciding to give away all this, not give away, but, you know, make it available to other engineers and whatnot, I actually gave my template and my samples to 
three of my good engineering friends here in Nashville. And I said, do your best to copy me. And the cool thing about it is it's just a starting spot in my estimation, because halfway through the mix, they decided to go this way when I would go this way. Mm -hmm. So they built it up, got the foundation. And then from there, they sent me back three different mixes that were totally different from what I would have done just because their ears pull them. Everybody's ears pull them in a certain direction, but they were both, all three of them were like, wow, this got us up to a certain point really fast. And then all we need to do is make our rides and tailor it towards our ear. And we're there. So it, it, it was designed to be predominantly a speed function just to get me home. So I could be a dad. I had two little kids. They're grown and gone now. Uh, but my wife was always like, you're working too much in the studio. You know, you're missing your kids growing up. And I really was, I was, I was out of balance. So by me starting this template type thing, or just figuring it out, I should say, uh, it really helped me to get my life in balance as far as work and home life. And every time something's in balance, you do good. You know what I mean? If something's out of whack like that, something's bad. Your home life's bad. Your work life isn't providing so you keep them in balance and everything's just happy, go lucky, which brings me to the way I'm dressed today. I'm actually playing hooky. I failed small engines in seventh grade and I vowed to redeem myself sometime in my life. So I actually bought an old broken motorcycle and I'm trying to get it running. So that's why I got all these dirty clothes and my backwards hat. I was outside working on the motorcycle on my day off. So. <laughs> Well, you know, let's go back to template for a second, uh, template mixing. How long did it take you to develop that? Uh, I've actually been modifying it ever since I started doing it, probably around 1999, 98 is when I kind of started figuring out. I would mix something, and then if I liked the sound of that, I would remove the audio, do a save as in Pro Tools, and then just drag the audio in by holding Command Option, and it allowed the audio to go up and down, but you can't go left and right. So it moved everything in place, you know? Yeah. And I just started doing that. And I had to do it because early days in Nashville, I came up in the demo world. So I was given five to nine, eight, sometimes 10 songs a day. And they had to be songwriter demos, full band. And they had to be done and completed for the next day. So my songwriter friends wouldn't miss a pitch and wouldn't miss out on like a Brooks and Dunn cut or a George Strait cut. So it was up to me to make it sound good and get it done. And fast forward 20 years, and now it still only takes me about 45 minutes to mix a song, whether I'm doing a record or whether I'm doing a demo or an independent project. I use all the same sounds. I do everything the same. It's just I've learned how to maximize my time and now it's funny if I spend more than an hour on a mix, I'll screw it up. Uh, I'll start go, I'll start going backwards. I'll second think myself, and I've got the templates dialed in so well that I actually have a folder, and I've got a rock template, I've got a bluegrass template. So I've kept all these songs that I think are appropriate over the years that work, and I can just run and grab them. So I guess the next phase I'll start selling these templates. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. But you've given so much away in your book, and, and it was fascinating for me to read. I, I read it last night. I can't wait to actually try the things that were outlined in the book. But that being said, there's a couple of things that jumped out at me. At the level you're at, 
you're probably getting really good tracks in and good arrangements. So a lot of that hassle has been pre-dealt with, so to speak. Not true. Not true. You would be you would be shocked at sometimes I'll get record quality stuff done in the finest studios with the finest microphones. Other times I'll get home recordings where I'm working on a project right now where the drum bleed is so bad that my triggers on my snare are firing when the kicks go. And I can't do anything other than go in and delete between every single snare hit manually. I've tried strip silence. I've tried adjusting the trigger threshold. Nothing works. So I do have the luxury of getting very well recorded stuff. But on the other hand, I do so much independent stuff and I still do a lot of demos and whatnot. My slogan is have audio will mix. You know, I just love to do it. And I always tell everybody, as long as it's not distorted, I can try to make it sound record quality. That's my goal on everything I do. Yeah. But I do get some stuff that's just, oh, it's a train wreck. You're just like that emoji, you know, <laughs> face palm. I know out here, the engineers that I get together with, and when we talk, one of the biggest problems during COVID is the fact that they're getting tracks in that like drum tracks that are recorded by musicians who aren't very good at it. And then that leaves the mixer to pull their hair out trying to make it sound good. But the fact that you're triggering things, especially kick and snare, uh, that kind of eliminates things. As, long, as you say, as long as it's clean, you're okay. The overheads and the rooms do make a big difference on the sound of the snare drum just because of the bleed and whatnot so you get a really bad sound in overheads it's i'll use the triggers and i always blend in the real snare kicks up I've, I've from day one i've just triggered a hundred percent no real at all snares and toms i will blend in about 50 percent and on like press rolls and whatnot on the snare i always have the real sitting here with the bottom and then maybe the samples are leading the party over here you come to a part where the dude rolls into a fill, I'll bring up the reel so you get that and then ride it back down. So it everybody's like, wow, he made that trigger using his triggers. How do you do that? Actually, all I did was just bring up the reel. Brilliant. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. One of the things I noticed is your treatment of the room. So if anyone gives you a, a room track, you enhance it, which is unusual. Yeah, every uh, every once in a while... I'll put on almost, uh, I think it's, was it true verb in the book? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I actually learned that from a metal guy named Brian hood, where he got a real tight drum sound in and he wanted it to be a bigger sounding room. And he's like, well, I'm just going to put instead of odds or bussing out to a reverb, he actually put it on the track and just ran it. Like, I think there's a parallel button on true verb where you can, have the direct signal as well as the affected signal. And he leaves that on and it literally just takes the drum, the overhead in the rooms. I'll even do it on the overhead sometimes. And it just kind of goes like that and that. Mm, yeah. That makes sense. I don't know if anybody's watching this or just listening, but if they're just listening, my hands just went up and a little wider. <laughs> One of the, the other hassles that most mixers have is the fact that the tracks come in, and especially the more independent the artist, the worse the tracks come in, the worse shape, 
which means that you have to spend a fair amount of time doing some prep on them, doing a lot of editing, getting rid of the clicks and pops and things like that, which is time consuming. So yeah, your mix may go in 45 minutes, but the prep time before that, how do you deal with that? Uh, traditionally, most stuff I get in is, ironically enough, most musicians these days are actually fairly competent engineers. So I'll get in tracks from musicians and there's a renaissance going on right now in Nashville because everybody was locked down with the virus thing. Almost every musician has a home studio and even drummers and they're doing overdubs at home and whatnot. And some of those drum sounds actually sound better than what I've gotten in major label recording studios, you know? Yeah. Uh, now that's not necessarily true all over the place. Um, but I've just learned to, because I had to, I clean all my own tracks. I trigger all my own drums. I, I really don't even think about it. Um, so for instance, I'll go through and clean a vocal on the fly. I'll hit play. And while I'm mixing, I'm actually cleaning out the dead space between the vocal and getting the breath and I'll hit play. And by the time the song's done, the vocal's clean. So that's three minutes tacked on to 45 minutes. So I guess I'm at 48 minutes yeah. <laughs> for a mix. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I lied. I lied. Is there a problem with the fact that your settings are the same all the time, depending upon the genre? Is there a Billy Decker sound? Yeah, without sounding egotistical, I'd like to think so. I run real sample heavy. And if you listen to any of the stuff I've mixed, there is a similarity just because I love samples. And I know Nashville's kind of gone up and down a love-hate with samples. When I came to town, Lynn Peterzell was like the guy in everything late 90s was kick, snare, samples, and tom. Then it went to a real organic sound. Then it went back samples. You know, Shania came about. And now we're, I think a lot of people have accepted samples. And I'm using them now more as a supplement rather than running. It's extremely sample heavy. I try to make it feel like samples do but i try to keep the realism if that makes any sense where before i just would i wouldn't even use the real snare uh so i would say i really enjoy aggressive loud guitar music so hard rock i've even dabbled in some metal and whatnot so i lean towards a real clicky kick drum a lot of times it's too clicky for nashville they're like dude what what are you we're doing a metallica record no (laughs) we're doing texas country you know And uh, I always like to use reverbs on the drums or reverb samples, but I've been taught and I kind of figured out through the years that I need to make the decay stop before the next hit goes. Mm. So I'm all about timing the decay of the sample or the actual reverb to get out of the way and make the drums a little more impactful. You can actually make them bigger by using smaller well-timed verbs. I, I guess that's what I'm going for. Yeah, I always felt that way too. Mm-hmm. If you don't time it right, then it either it doesn't blend with the track and the track doesn't pulse. It doesn't, you know, everything doesn't mm-hmm. pulse at the same time. You're big for parallel compression. On uh, kick and snare and toms, I never run overheads or cymbals or rooms or hi-hats through it. I know a lot of people do. I've just never been able to get it to work. 
And predominantly, that's the only thing I use parallel compression on. Everything else goes to my two bus other than my background vocals. I do run those through a subgroup. So I guess that would be considered if I also sent it to the two bus as well as the V sub, what I called in the book. You know, a lot of times I'll send it to both places just to get it above the track. Yeah, got it. Uh, one thing I noticed was that you treat all keyboards the same. Yeah, predominantly, I will every once in a while. I mean, I'll just put them in the template. And I guess the theory behind that is they live in such a certain space. All the keyboards I get, they're always in the same frequency range. I'm always going to treat them the same. And then the only thing that'll differentiate them would be the source material. And that's kind of my theory on electric guitars, too. I always add just a little bit of that 7K, a little bump at 240 and a little bump at 100 on that API EQ. And since then, I like you mentioned, I have a, a series of plugins that are endorsed with my name on them through Joey Sturgis Tones. I've actually built those settings into that. So all you do is put the plugin on. It's already pre-EQ'd. It's pre-clipped. It's pre-limited. And it's exactly those settings. So, How do you deal with like multiple electric guitars in the same frequency range, the same register that, you know, sometimes they clash, you know, real heavily. And if you use the same settings on them, you're not really separating them. Uh, I'll delete them. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get rid of them, throw them away, put them in the trash. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Uh, every once in a while, I'll, I'll go in and, and actually bump, you know, like some 3K, 4K to get it to bite through. Sometimes I'll put it in a, a little verb. Usually I run electric guitars just bone dry and hard left and right. I'm a big left, right, or right in the middle. That's it. Mm-hmm. And then let the source material differentiate the frequency spectrums rather than just try to find a little hole for everything. But once in a while I will, but I, I am not opposed to throwing stuff away. I, I went and spoke at a, a summit for the Unstoppable Recording Machine in Florida, and I had students actually on a panel, and I was mixing, and they were watching and asking questions. And the drums came up, and I'm like, sub kick. All right, let's throw that in the garbage. We don't need that. Uh, mono room? No. Crush mic? No. Uh, bottom? No, we don't need the bottom snare. It's rattling too much. And I was just throwing stuff left and right, and everybody was like, oh. <gasps> Well, again, mixers complain all the time that they're getting, you know, 120 tracks in, of which it's okay if they're labeled, and you can decide that, but the big problem is if they're not, and you have to listen to them all, and then try to figure out what to do. So that takes a lot of time, too. In Nashville, we get a lot of uh, electric guitars mic'd up with a SM57, and then a condenser mic as well, Mm -hmm. and nine times out of ten... I throw everything away except the 57. So I just have one, I, I'll get like three guitar passes in, but there's six tracks. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I'll instantly just make those the 57 left, right, a little bit over here, maybe put a little delay on it to differentiate it. Go, you know, turn it up, down, rock and roll. Yeah. Sometimes there's a room track on them and, and you go, well, why? And then when you ask the engineer, the producer, it's like, well, it's so you have lots of options. It's like, screw that. I don't want the options. You figure that out. I've got a friend who is a real good tracking engineer here in town and he called me the other day and he goes, yeah, we were on a session and I was micing up all this stuff and I didn't put a, uh, all these extra room mics and the, the producer is like, Hey, 
or no, it was the musicians. They're like, hey, how come you're not putting up all these things? He's like, no, Decker's mixing it. He's going to throw it away anyway, so we don't even need to put it up. <laughs> foot hand, foot hand, foot hand, glass. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, vocal is, I mean, that's the most important thing in a mix when you have it, and you treat the vocal specially. Can you talk about that? Yes, but as far as the template goes, I usually... A male vocal is always going to sound like a male vocal. A female vocalist is always going to be within a certain range. The only thing that will change, and I do change on every time I get a vocal in, is the amount I pull out of, like right here, in the low mids. Nine times out of ten, the upper mids and the very, very highs are, for the most part, flat. You know, I'll maybe add a little 15K, like in the book, in the template. But the only, I, I'm more of a cutter than an adder, if that makes sense, on vocals. Because I think vocals sound good the way they are. And the only thing when they marry up with a microphone is they always get this cloudiness. And by just carving out a little of that low end, that seems to clear them up. And then just put a little air or sparkle on top and smash it, double DS it, and you're done. You know, de-honk it, DS it, you're done. Yeah, you know, and you know, I read and I saw you have two DSers, and it's like, I, yeah, of course, there's always more than one space that you have to do that on. Oh yeah, and the the one I always put at two K, I call it the Trisha Yearwood frequency or the Carrie Underwood frequency, <laughs> and that's not a knock on either one of those girls, but it's just that that two K nasalness thing that's inherent in their voice. And so, if anybody goes, "Hey, can you knock down some of that?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, I know exactly where that is." So the that DSer seems to do a real good job. And I always put it at the end because all the compression and the limiting up top always brings that up. So it needs to get just knocked back a bit. Well, let's talk about your plugins. Are they available now? They are. Uh, they've been out for about a year and I developed them with Joey Sturgis at JST. I know Joey. I know JST well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He actually came and uh, I did a nail the mix episode. Uh, a while back for his recording school with him and A.L. Levy and Joel Wanasek, Unstoppable Recording Machine. I did a Nail the Mix episode. And it was funny because at the end of the two days of filming or whatnot, he's like, you know what? And he was sitting in the ISO booth just running the video switcher. So he had to watch the whole thing. And uh, he was like, you and I are so similar in our approach to the way we work. The only difference is, is our source material. I'm a metalhead. You're, you're a cowboy. You're a country guy. He's like, I would love to do a series of plugins around your settings because they're so similar to mine. I totally get what you do. And so that's how we uh, started the dialogue. And then that turned into, I've done drum packs for him now and, We've got another plugin that just came out called DrumFlex through his side company called DrumForge. But it's been really fun. And what's really neat is the process of building these is really cool because I will actually set up my channel, like let's say uh, a guitar, the guitar plugin. I've got, it's the same settings that I use in the book. And I send him those through audio and his coder guy the guy writing the code actually listens to it, sees what I'm doing, goes, oh, okay, he's using a, an 11, or he's using an API style EQ. So then they go into the JST folder and go, yeah, we've got a model of, of an API through our company. And they morph those on there, and then they use my settings. So it's, 
modeled after what I use, but it's actually their code, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and then we send off, and there's a graphics guy that has to do it, and I had input into that. And it was funny. Uh, a Swedish guy was in charge of the graphics and did an amazing job, but he kept calling me the decorator instead of a decorator. I've got a little <laughs> decorator knob on every plugin, and it's basically just it gives it that little extra oomph. It's like the last plugin in the chain. So it'd be like the emulation of the L2 just bringing it up on the guitar channel. And uh, he also wanted to make one of the plugins real country looking, uh, the guitar plugins. So he sent back the graphics and it was like this wild West Wyoming and a cowboy was like, go. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> Americans country music is not really like, yeah, yeah, right. let's go get them doggy. So anyway, we changed it to the guitar looking thing, the, the classic Stratocaster looking stuff. And that's what we use, but it was funny. So, for about two months, I was the decerator over in Sweden. Tell me about the drum packages. So are they emulating what you use? They are. They're, uh, everybody was putting out their series of one shots. Uh, they're called drum shots. And a lot of, before they approached me, everybody was just getting, you know, samples they use and stuff like that. And I took it one step further. I went and grabbed, uh, we're allowed to do five five drum sounds in this pack is what they wanted or at least for me it was five and i decided to actually take the exact combinations from number one records that i'd mixed and name them that so i did a rodney atkins one uh, called take a back road and i called it the back road kick and snare you know and then the room verb with that so i actually took the exact samples i used to make those records minus the real because i don't have the that's the record company owns that. And uh, so that's how those came about. So, th But they are the exact, they're pre-blended, pre pre-everything. I, I snapped up the session, took out the real stuff, and bounced with all my processing on it. So you can actually throw them up into trigger or, what, or you know whatever you're using to fire off your samples. And you don't have to do anything. Just put them in, they're done. Pre-cued, pre Parallel compressed everything. Wow, that's very cool. Yeah, it's kind of fun, and uh, they've actually asked me to do another pack. So, I've I've done two packs right now, and I'm I'm going to do a third pack for them. So, you're using a slate trigger, right? I am. Yeah, and that seems to be the best way to fire off samples I've found. I used to have Drumagog, and I'm just more comfortable with trigger. And it's funny, everybody when whenever they see me mixing live or I do a panel. I've still got the original trigger. Everybody's morphed on to trigger two. And they're like, man, is that a new one? Where'd you get that? Uh, you know, people don't remember what the first one looked like. It was funny because Steven uh, sent me uh, some of his plugins. I'm still on Pro Tools 10. I'm, I'm the total guy that's like, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So all my other friends have the fastest computer. I've got a computer from 2011. You know, I don't even think it runs USB 3 in the front, you know. but. Uh, so he sent me uh, some of his plugins and uh, I did a review for him for his microphone and they actually had to build me a legacy bridge to work with my, my stuff. I'm, I'm on like Pro Tools 10.3.9 and they, I don't, they don't even make stuff anymore. But it was funny because he had, he goes, I hope you know you how special you are. You're the only guy that's got a legacy bridge. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like dinosaurs. And then, 
when I'm doing these uh, newer things with Joey Sturgis, his his programming engineers constantly just berate me with, hey, hey, Gramps, what are you doing? <laughs> hey, Dinosaur, you think maybe you could join 2020? I'm like, guys, think, and I'm always asking them to build me stuff. I'm like, think of this as you're building a classic car. You're learning something from your past. And they're like, you're an idiot, Decker. Buy a new computer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that actually leads me to my next question about, okay, you have your template down, you know it works, but that being said, some of the fun of mixing is finding new plugins and finding things that you didn't quite expect that work maybe in a better way, but you're restricted from that because you're on an old system. Uh, yes and no. Uh, what I really enjoy, I, I'm not so much into looking for the newest, latest, greatest compressor. I mean, a compressor is a compressor in my estimation. Yeah. You know, it's just a different package and whatnot. But what I do enjoy is coming in on my day off and practicing. I still practice if, well, when I'm not building a motorcycle, how about that? Yeah. <laughs> I love coming in and trying new sample combinations and maybe uh, a new way to do something. But I feel like I've got everything. The wheel's been invented, you know? I, I know it's going to roll. And right now I'm at the point where people go, Hey, what's your favorite plugin? And I just point to my ear, you know, if I can't get what I've got with what I have after doing it this long, I need to just quit and start building motorcycles. (laughs) (laughs) Now, given how successful you are, you know, it's funny because you you kind of answered this, but writing a book about what you did. Uh, it's very cool that you would give away the secrets, but on the other hand, you're giving away the secrets. You know, I used to be worried about that, but then when I did that test with my three buddies and the mix came, I gave my exact settings and everything, and the mix came back totally different. I'm like, at the end of the day, everybody is going to hear something different, you know? Yeah. You can put the settings in and it will get you 90% of the way there. But I figured, and I guess the way I feel is, I was given this knowledge by other people. Chris Lord Algae gave me some pointers. Uh, Mike Shipley, God rest his soul. You know, I, I got to speak with him and he endowed some samples on me. Engineers like that, Chuck Ainley, back in the country day when I was coming up, you know, he would answer any question I had. Um, so I figured I was given that. Why not give it back and share the knowledge? Plus, if everybody mixed like me, I would listen to the radio all the time. (laughs) (laughs) How about that? Yeah, very cool. Very cool. (laughs) I would love listening to the radio. (laughs) What you do gets you 90% of the way there. But is there a favorite plug-in or a favorite technique that you use that gets you the other 10%? It is. And I think it's just listening probably louder than I should. And for not a long period of time, but a short period of time and totally just going with my gut and not second thinking it, I will crank it up in the studio and just for lack of a better term, jam, jam out to it, you know? And if it feels good, I'm done. I've learned after this long, I can let it go partially because I know my clients are going to have some tweaks. So I will get it. I tell everybody, I'll paint the picture. We're going to paint a picture. I'll, I'll put you in the box, anything you want to do in there. 
that's subjective. You know, I can't read everybody's mind. So I'm going to spend five hours doing something I think is cool. And then the producer or the artist is going to come in and go, no, that's, that's horrible. That's stupid. What do you do? You know, let's, I'm going to do that. So I'm like, I'm just going to get it to where I know it feels good. Then I'm going to bring in the producer and or the artist or the songwriter. I'll let them play with it as long as they want. If they take a whole day, well, then that mix actually did take a day, you know? Yeah. But I only spent the 45 minutes or say, let's say 48 or an hour, like what we said, yeah. getting it where it felt good. And I think what makes a really cool record is the input from the artists, the writers, the producer, and just the little fine things that make it kind of shine, you know? So, and that's all what they're going to do anyway. And I love people coming over and hanging in the studio and contributing to their own music. So that's kind of the approach I take. I just, I'm going to build it and then I'm going to let them decorate. I'll bake the cake and I'll let them decorate it. How about that? You can find out more about Billy, his plugins and drum sounds at billydecker.com. That's billydecker, D-E-C-K-E-R, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.